und herzlich willkommen in Berlin. Hello and a hearty welcome to Berlin. To City Breaks Berlin, in fact, a brand new series. And because I imagine there'll be some new listeners, I thought I might start by just explaining what City Breaks actually is. I'm Marion Jones. I devised and run City Breaks. I like to take one fascinating city at a time, pick it apart, find out what there is to see there, and then research the history and culture behind all the places you're most likely to visit. I do that by reading guidebooks and history books, novels set in the city sometimes, some internet research, and most importantly, an actual visit to spend a week or sometimes two in the city and go round and see for myself. And then I parcel all of that up into episodes, most of which centre around somewhere or a collection of places to visit. And the result, I hope, is a guide to the city that puts everything into context, helps you see the history behind things, helps you decide which places you want to visit and get the most out of them when you go, because you understand what you're looking at. I like to think it'll be interesting even if you're not actually going or not going any time soon. And equally, if you've already been, well, here's a chance to reminisce. So, Berlin then, where to start with this amazing, fascinating, history-packed and yet also bang-up-to-the-minute city? It's certainly true that Berlin still has a bit of the reputation it gained in the 1920s as a party city and a city of culture, summed up very nicely by Rory MacLean in his introduction to the book City Lit Berlin, where he wrote, During the Weimar years, it was the world's most exciting city. Here, Walter Gropius conceived the Bauhaus, and Isherwood immortalised the cabaret. Nabokov, Kafka, Auden and Spencer were inspired in its cafes. At Babelsberg studio, Fritz Lang filmed Metropolis, while von Sternberg and Marlene Dietrich created The Blue Angel. For ten breathless years, artists and intellectuals danced on the edge of a volcano. And yes, that hint at the end that events were going to take over, and that really for the rest of the 20th century, Berlin would be known no longer as a city of culture, much more as a city of war and tragedy. A notion summed up by Heather Rays, the editor of City Lit Berlin, when she wrote, This amazing chameleon-like city, which embodies so much of 20th century history, both the good and the bad, and which has picked itself up after its disasters and turned itself into a vibrant centre of culture and fun, as well as of serious reflection. So there's an indication of some of the reasons why I picked Berlin for the new City Break series. But for me, there's another reason too, one to which you might relate if you're a traveller. And that is, whenever I'm in Berlin, I like to go to the main station, the Hauptbahnhof, and just gaze at the departure board. Because from Berlin, you can get on a train and go to all those faraway, eastern, interesting-sounding places. Prague and Krakow, Warsaw, Moscow. And yes, much as I love London and Paris and all the other cities I've covered, I do always feel there's a certain something about Berlin that sets it apart. So, in the introductory episode to every series, I like to give some basic facts to just help people find their bearings. Some geography, for example. The first thing I wanted to say was, Berlin, of course, is the capital of Germany. Even that sentence is fraught with, well, yes, it is now, but it wasn't always. Layers of history and turbulence and change. Anyway, Berlin, situated in northeast Germany, in the state of Brandenburg, 
You might know that Germany has 16 states. You've probably heard of Bavaria or maybe Nordrhein-Westfalia. And Berlin is the capital of the state of Brandenburg. To fix it in Europe then, useful facts. It's 70 miles south of the Baltic coast, 50 or 60 miles west of Poland, 120 miles north of the Czech Republic. It sits on the North German plain, low-lying, only 30 or 40 metres above sea level. There are a couple of ideas about where the name Berlin came from, but one of them is that it derives from an old Slavic word, B-E-R-L, bell, which meant swamp. Before you think that doesn't sound very pleasant, let me add that Berlin is surrounded on all sides by forests and lakes. About a third of the area of Greater Berlin, I think, is covered by those two things. And what about the humans? Well, it's Germany's largest city, one of Europe's cities with the largest population, sixth largest, I think. There are 3.5 million Berliners, about 14% of them of foreign origin. Actually, I read from 190 different countries, but for historical reasons, particularly from a certain few countries. Lots with Turkish or Greek origin, dating from the 1950s and 60s, when workers from those countries were encouraged to come over and help in the rebuilding of the city and the booming German economy. Also a lot of East Europeans from countries like Poland, who arrived post-1989 when the wall came down and travel into the West was possible. And then, of course, more recently, waves of refugees from Syria, from Ukraine. I'm recording this in the spring of 2022, when we've all been watching television pictures of Berlin Hauptbahnhof, the main station, where waves and waves of Ukrainians have been arriving, either to settle in Berlin or, as a staging post, to be moved on to other parts of Germany or Europe. As for the climate, I did some research and was a bit surprised at what I found. Average summer temperatures, 18 degrees. OK, but average winter temperatures, minus 1 degrees. Now, having been a veteran of many Berlin trips in February or March with my students, I'd say it's much colder than that. I've certainly been in minus 10, down to minus 15 fairly frequently, and I have seen the river spray frozen over. As a bit of orientation, let me try and describe the shape of the city, the main things that leap out at you if you look at a map. Well, first of all, the river spray winding its way right through the middle of the city, and also dividing and then joining up again in the middle, creating an island called Museum Island. I think the other thing you'll spot straight away looking at a map is that the northwestern quarter of the city is dominated by a huge park, the Tiergarten, 520 acres. That makes it smaller than Central Park in New York, but bigger than Hyde Park in London. As for the main roads that feature in the city, I think the top one would be the one called Unter den Linden, which means under the lime trees. That leads from the Tiergarten, the park, east towards Alexanderplatz, passes under the Brandenburg Gate, and is the street for wandering along and spotting famous buildings from the past. The Cathedral, the Humboldt University, the State Opera House, etc. Unter den Linden crosses Museum Island at one end and leads towards the east of the city. At the other end, it changes its name at the Tiergarten and becomes the Street of the 17th of June, or Straße des 17. Juni, a significant date I'm sure we'll come back to. And that's the road you may have seen on the television with the huge victory column in the middle. The place where Berliners congregate when they, I don't know, win a World Cup or something. 
north to south, I think the main road to spot would be the Friedrichstrasse, so named after Frederick the Great, which crosses over Unterden Linden and leads down to places like Checkpoint Charlie. Of the well-known squares, there's Alexanderplatz in the east and Potsdamer Platz near the southeast corner of the Tiergarten. That used to be the very centre of Berlin before the Second World War, but it was so badly destroyed that it had to be more or less completely rebuilt. And I think it's fair to say the old Potsdamer Platz has completely disappeared, and now it's new builds, shiny shops, and statement buildings like the Sony Centre. As for the west of the city, the best-known street is the Kofürstendamm, which is a bit of a mouthful for anyone who's not German. In fact, a bit of a mouthful even if you are German, which is why they shorten it to the Kuhdamm. Today, really a shopping street with the biggest department store, the KDW, on it, and the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church at one end. That's the one you may have seen pictures of, where the remains of the old Kaiser Wilhelm Church that were left after the bombing in World War II were left standing, and a new, very modern memorial church built just next door. So, taken together, they work as a memorial to the past and a hope for peace in the future. So that's the big general picture. Most maps of central Berlin will show the city divided into eight districts. And ideally, I think it's good to have a map that shows those, but also shows the path of the wall. Where did it run? So you can think of it as running pretty much from north to south Berlin through the middle. And on the eastern side of the map, you'll find the districts of Historic Mitte, which is the very middle. You'll find Potsdamer Platz and Alexanderplatz. A bit north of there, you'll find something called the Scheunenviertel, which is the old Jewish sector of town, and Prenzlauer Berg. Note, too, that the path of the wall left the Brandenburg Gate in the eastern half, on the border between the two. And that leaves then, on the western side of the wall, the old West Berlin, the Tiergarten, the Kofürstendamm, Charlottenburg, and other leafy suburbs. If you've listened to previous series, you'll know that I quite like to give a little historical rundown of the city too in the introductory episode. And that, of course, for Berlin, is quite a saga. I think it's true to say that most of the moments of history which are relevant for tourists and people visiting the city are from the 20th century. So I'm going to skate through everything before that very quickly. Berlin was originally founded in the early 13th century by people deciding that that spot on the River Spree was a good place for a settlement and a trade route. One thing I did discover that has relevance today is the fact that the area was peopled by Slavs at one point, who were subdued and defeated by one Albert I, also known as Albert the Bear. And that is the origin of the bear being the symbol of Berlin. A big black bear standing on hind legs looks quite fierce and defiant on some of the flags and symbols, but found these days in much cutesier versions on souvenirs and whatnot. There is one family you have to know about, because they ruled Prussia. Of course, we're not talking about Germany until much later. They ruled over Prussia from 1411 right up until 1918, and they were the Hohenzollerns. Let's not get lost in the detail. Suffice to say that there were lots of Fredericks amongst them, the best known of whom was Frederick the Great. We will be coming back to him a few times, so I'll just mention that he reigned from 1740 until 1772. And things that made him great included his military successes. Prussia became much bigger under his rule. 
but he was also known as an Enlightenment man who took an interest in arts and science and music. He spoke six modern languages, respect, and could also read Latin and Greek and Hebrew. He was also fond of commissioning buildings, and you'll hear his name quite a lot when you go to see, for example, the State Opera House or the French and German cathedrals on Gendarmenmarkt, or his favourite palace out at Potsdam. As for the 19th century, quite a lot of turbulence, although not, as it turned out, as much as there would be in the 20th. So Berlin was occupied by Napoleon in 1806. There were major uprisings in 1830 and 1848. The earlier one over working conditions, the later one more over power and who was going to hold it. There was a huge rise in population, which quadrupled over the century to become about 400,000. And the key, key date is 1871, the unification of Germany under Otto von Bismarck. So Prussia and other provinces, kingdoms, etc., joining together and choosing, as their capital, Berlin. Where to start with the turbulence of the 20th century? I turned to the Encyclopaedia Britannica, where I found the following short description that says so much. Four times in the 20th century, the date of November the 9th has marked dramatic events in the history of Germany and Berlin. On that date in 1918, Berlin became the capital of the First German Republic. Five years later, Hitler's putsch was put down in Munich. In 1938, Nazi stormtroopers vandalised Jewish synagogues, shops and other properties in the night of violence known as Kristallnacht, or Night of Broken Glass. And on November the 9th, 1989, East German authorities opened the wall which had divided the city for 28 years. There's so much packed into that little description. Defeat in World War I and the humiliation of the Treaty of Versailles. Runaway inflation and mass unemployment in 1920s Germany. The rise to power of Adolf Hitler, who became Chancellor in 1933. The persecution by the Nazis of so many people. The Jews, most of all but also communists, social democrats, labour unionists. The story of all those from Jews to artists and so many others who fled Germany during the 1930s. The destruction of Berlin during World War II. More than 50,000 Berliners killed by Allied bombing. Another 100,000 killed in the Battle for Berlin when the Soviet army arrived in April 1945. Two-thirds of the city left completely in ruins the destruction of most of its residential areas, its factories, its streets, its cultural buildings. And then, while the other European capitals were slowly rebuilding their destroyed cities, more turbulence. So Germany was divided into four sectors, American, British, French and Russian, as was Berlin. Berlin was sitting in the middle of the Russian sector, but the Allied powers decided they would have that too, divided into four Gradually, the American, British and French sectors became one, both in Germany and in Berlin. But the Soviet sector remained apart, very much still under Soviet control. They tried to force the issue by blockading West Berlin and refusing to allow goods in or out, an attempt to starve West Berliners into submission. The Allied response? The Berlin airlift. Utterly amazing. An 11-month period when so many flights were landing in Berlin every few minutes, 200,000 in all, I think, bringing the food and other supplies that would keep West Berlin going. 
the Russians abandoned the blockade in May 1949, and that's how it is that the divided city ended up as an island surrounded on all sides by what was becoming East Germany. There was much unrest in East Berlin and East Germany in general in the 1950s, and over that decade, hundreds of thousands of East Germans and East Berliners left. They went via West Berlin to the West, to the point where the East German government could see that they had to do something. And the solution they came up with was the Berlin Wall. Erected pretty much overnight in August 1961, isolating West from East Berlin and separating families for a generation until the dramatic events of 1989, when, in a story I'll tell in more detail in the relevant episode, finally, finally, the wall came down. Communist rule had collapsed, East and West Germany were reunited, the wall was torn down, Berlin was declared the capital of the whole country. A few segments of the wall have been preserved as monuments, and you can still see in places traces of the old East or West Berlin, but it's becoming less and less obvious with every decade that passes. If you ask the question, what are the symbols of modern Berlin, an answer that many people would come up with would be the Parliament building, the Reichstag. Built originally in central Berlin, Western Germany made Bonn its capital, moved its Parliament there, but after reunification the old Reichstag building was renovated and most significantly topped by a huge glass dome symbolic of the transparency with which the new government hoped to rule its country. Not far away is the other building, which very much symbolises Berlin, the Brandenburg Gate. And I've already mentioned the black bear, which is the official symbol of the city. And you will see other bears too, big coloured polystyrene ones standing outside shops and in parks. Cute little ones adorning key rings and mugs and other things to buy to take home. And you might know that in the Berlin Film Festival, which is held every February, films and actors are not awarded an Oscar or a Golden Palm. No, they win the Golden Bear, or if they're the runners-up, a Silver Bear. Incidentally, the German for bear is bear, and the German for little bear would be Berlin, which you can probably hear sounds a little bit like Berlin, and there is a theory that maybe that's why the city was called Berlin. If we're talking of symbols, I think we have to mention too the two big towers, one in each half of the city. So the Victory Column, Siegersäule, in the Tiergarten in the western half, and the TV Tower, built by the East Germans, taller of course, quite determined to have their own sky-reaching symbol. And finally, another symbol of Berlin, the Ampelmann. So Ampel means traffic lights, and the Ampelmann is that squat little red or green character that you see at the traffic lights telling you that you can, or may not, cross the road. Originally, the Ampelmann came from East Berlin. In the West they had the same figure as other major European capitals. But gradually since reunification, the East German version, which is much cuter, has been adopted all over the city. And the Ampelmann too features all over souvenirs. In fact, there's a whole shop, I think, devoted to the Ampelmann on Unter den Linden, somewhere near Alexanderplatz. As for summing up Berlin and what makes it unique, perhaps you have to start by saying it's a city of history, and it's a city of contrasts, whether that's East versus West, or the fact that the one-time capital of Prussia became one of Europe's capitals of cool. It's a city of remembrance, with its Holocaust memorial, 
and its Stolpersteine, the little panels in the pavement remembering people murdered by the Nazi regime, and more widely the Neue Wache, the very moving sculptured memorial which sits on Unter den Linden just next to the German History Museum. And talking of museums, it's definitely the city of museums. There's a whole island of them, which I've already mentioned, five enormous museums of art and archaeology clustered together on Museum Island. There's an equivalent in what was Western Berlin too, where they built the Kultur Forum, where you'll find some of the city's best art galleries and also the home of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. Art generally is a huge theme in Berlin. Three massive world-famous galleries, various art movements which started life here, for example Bauhaus, lots of street art, some of it connected to the Berlin Wall. It's a city of squares and avenues, a city where the architecture is of great significance and very varied. Little bits of medieval Berlin left in the Nikolai Viertel, up near Alexanderplatz. Baroque splendour from the time of Frederick the Great. The Plattenbau from East German era. And the new and the modern, the shopping centres, etc. at places like Potsdamer Platz. Definitely a city of churches. Yes, it has the cathedral on the River Spree where many of the Hohenzollerns are buried. But there's also the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church, symbolising war and peace and so many more. A square, Gendarmen marked, with two cathedrals, one at each end, and so many other well-known churches, the Nikolaikirche, the Marienkirche, both near Alexanderplatz, the Matthiaskirche, down near the Kulturforum. But it's also very much a city which stresses the outdoor, the Spree River and all the canals, the forest and the lakes, I think a third of the territory of Greater Berlin is forest or lake, around the edge, and further in to the centre, the parks, particularly the Tiergarten, lots of little parks, and the best known perhaps the Lustgarten, which translates as Pleasure Garden, and forms the entrance just along from the cathedral to Museum Island. Very much a city which takes the ecological seriously. I don't think I've ever seen so many bike paths, for example, in a capital city. They're built on the edge of the pavements, painted red, and you do need to get the hang of them, because cyclists whistle past you at breakneck speed and feel quite irate if you happen to be standing in the way, consulting a map. I speak from experience. It's definitely a city of music as well, whether that's the old Marlene Dietrich and the cabaret scene, the jazz clubs, or the world-famous, the Berlin Philharmonic, or the nightclub scene that attracts young people from all over the world, I read somewhere that, I think it was in the Rough Guide, a survey had been conducted in which Berlin was voted as the 10th coolest city in the world. I think Berliners will be querying that and trying to get themselves moved up the rating. So, all in all then, so much to it. So much that there are going to be 20 episodes, which between them will, I hope, cover all the things I've mentioned and much more. So next week, episode 2, I'm going to start with the two iconic buildings the Reichstag and the Brandenburg Gate, and then episodes three and four on Unter den Linden and the Tiergarten and Kudam, respectively. So basically, the highlights of the Old East and the Old West. I do want to linger in some of the old squares, which have so many stories attached to them. So episode five will be on the Gendarmenmarkt and Babelsplatz, and episode six on Alexanderplatz and the Potsdamer Platz followed then by four episodes detailing the history and where to find it. Episode 7, 
on Finding World War Two. So we'll go to the Olympic Stadium and the big exhibition called The Topography of Terror, which explains exactly what happened. Perhaps a passing visit to the site of Hitler's bunker. Episode 8, I'm going to dedicate to the Holocaust and Remembrance. Episode 9, The Berlin Wall, which will involve visits to the bits you can still see and to Checkpoint Charlie. Then in episode 10, I'm going to take a tour of the places which tell you more about the DDR, or the German Democratic Republic as we called it. So former East Berlin, the bit behind the wall that most people couldn't visit. There are a couple of very interesting places to visit that tell you all about that. After that, some episodes on art, one on the three big galleries, one on some of the Berlin art movements, followed by episodes on music, theatre and film. All a mix of some of the history and places that you can visit today to enjoy those things. For episode 15, I'm going to look at Jewish Berlin and the places such as the Neue Synagoge, New Synagogue, and the Jewish Museum, which tell its story. Then three episodes out of the city centre, one on Charlottenburg, the summer palace built by the Hohenzollerns, a day at the lakes out to Wannsee, and Großglinicke, both of which have lots of interesting things to see, and a day to Potsdam. I think you could do a whole city break series on Potsdam, actually, but on a day out from Berlin, perhaps what we want to look at is the two main palaces there, and the stories connected to them. And then to finish off, an episode on travel writers and what they had to say about Berlin, both past and present, and the very last one, an anthology. Literary extracts, something to do with Berlin, set there perhaps, or written by Berlin writers and telling us something about Berlin culture. And that will be it. Taken all together, I hope a comprehensive and interesting guide to what there is to see in Berlin today and what you need to know about its past to get the most out of your visit. And so I hope very much that you'll be able to join me next week for episode two on the Reichstag and the Brandenburg Gate. And all that remains for me to do now then is to thank you, in German of course, for listening and to say goodbye. If you've listened to the Munich series, you may recall that Auf Wiedersehen, which is German for goodbye, really means until I see you again, which doesn't work for a podcast. So I'm going to use Auf Wiederhören, which means until we're listening to each other again. So, here goes then. Vielen Dank und auf Wiederhören. <laughs> <laughs>